Acts 7, starting at verse 1. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way, your descendants will will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterwards they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king, who knew nothing about Joseph, became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people, and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being ill-treated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, 
Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was ill-treating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the impression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected, with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself, through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt, at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. This agrees with, with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of Molech and the star of your god Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers, under Joshua, brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob but it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your father's. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? 
They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there, giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it's been coming, hasn't it? The pressure's been building in the book of Acts, the first Six chapters have really been a a whistle-stop tour of of exciting church growth. Thousands, thousands coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Amazing miracles being done on the streets of Jerusalem. And then in Acts chapters 4 and 5, the opposition is beginning to build. The apostles are put on trial, released, put on trial again, imprisoned, beaten, threatened with death. The pressure is about to explode. And so we come to Acts 7 and and Luke slows right down. A, A long speech from Stephen. And he wants us to slow down as well. We've been kind of rushed to this point in the early days of the church and now suddenly, suddenly we have this man Stephen standing before the council. And Luke wants to, wants to point to him and say, look at this man, consider him, think about what it means to be a faithful witness to Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus has called the church to do, to be his witnesses. And so Luke says, look at this man. So what is the faithful witness. What does the faithful witness do? Well, firstly, this is going to be the the longest point, so don't worry too much. And the faithful witness confronts tradition with truth. Stephen is accused at the end of chapter 6. They say, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law, for we have heard him say, that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, the temple, and change the customs Moses handed down to us. So the high priest opens the trial. Is that true? And so Stephen begins his speech. But you may be thinking, 
how, how on earth does what he says answer that question? How, how does his sermon relate to those charges of destroying the temple uh, and changing the customs of Moses? You see, it, it seems to me that if Stephen had finished his sermon at verse 50, the, the high priest in the council might have just not along. They've been quite happy with it. Yeah, actually, that's a fairly faithful retelling of the Old Testament story. But, but throughout this sermon, Stephen is laying the foundations for his application at the end. He, he's answering those questions. Is Jesus going to destroy the temple? Is Jesus going to change the customs of Moses? So how does he do that with, with the temple first? Well, look at verse 2. First thing he says, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. Not in the temple, not, a, not even in the promised land. God appeared to Abraham in a foreign country somewhere. Well, okay, fine, but, but Abraham didn't settle in the land. He knew he wasn't going to settle there. It was for his descendants after him, so perhaps that's to be expected. So what about the patriarchs? Jacob and Joseph and all the rest. Well, they settled in Canaan. But then, verse 9, Joseph has his dreams, makes his brothers mad, and they sell him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him in Egypt. Not, not back in the promised land where all his brothers were. God was with Joseph in Egypt. Okay. The, the brother that was rejected is God's chosen saviour. Fine, so, so God appears to Joseph in Egypt, but we, we know he's, they're not meant to stay there. I mean, that's not the long-term plan either. God has promised to Abraham they'll, they'll be in a country not their own, but I'll bring them out. So we move on to Moses. What about him? Well, he, he starts off in Egypt and kills the Egyptian and flees when he realizes that everyone knows that he's done it. Verse 30, after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert. Not in Egypt, not in the promised land. And then, verse 33, the Lord says to him, the place where you were standing is holy ground. It's just it's in the desert, by a bush. That place there, that is holy ground, because God has met with him there. But that's not the temple. It's not where the temple was built. And Stephen summarizes it in, in verses 44 to 50. They had the tabernacle in the desert where they could meet with God. They brought it into the land. Finally, Solomon built the temple. But even then, even then Isaiah the prophet says, the temple can't contain God. He, he made heaven and earth. How can a single house contain him? Him. 
So throughout this, this story of Israel, where the temple does hold that significant place of being the place where God meets with his people, there are still these times where the fathers of Israel, Abraham and Joseph and Moses, all meet with God outside of the temple, outside of the land. And so that the temple, the temple's a shadow. It's a shadow of a, of a greater reality. It, it was designed for, the, for that time for those people to meet with God, but not forever. That wasn't the eternal plan. But tradition has enshrined the temple to the exclusion of God meeting with anyone anywhere else. And it's, it's blinded them to the fact that the righteous one has come, Jesus Christ, and that is where now we meet with God. Well, what about the customs handed down by Moses? Is Jesus going to change those? Well, Moses didn't exactly have a great time with the people of Israel, did he? Verse 26 and 27 show that he too was a rejected brother. His fellow Israelites reject him as a leader. But again, he's God's chosen saviour. And, they, and he leads them out of Egypt and they follow him. But then what happens? After he led them out, after he gave them the law, well, verse 39, but our fathers refused to obey him. Moses had given them living words from God. Just in that verse 38, just before, the living words had come from God and they refused to obey him. And instead, they made an idol. And that wasn't just then for those people. Look, you see the quotation from Amos there in 42 and 43. That, that pattern of, of rejecting God's leader, of rejecting God's law, carries right the way through until the people go into exile in Babylon. And so Stephen here, he, he is responding to these charges. He is responding to them. And he's saying, your tradition is destroying the truth of God. Throughout Israel's history, there, there have been two streams, if you like. A, a stream of people who are chosen by God and called to save the nation and another stream of people who reject those leaders and reject God's word, all in the same nation together. He's given them saviors and they reject them. He gives them the law and they disobey it. So he's responding to those charges. But, but again, if he, if he finished, if he finished at verse 50, he might not have died so why does he get killed? Well, it's because of his application. Because he continues talking. And he says, you, you are the ones 
following that second stream of people who reject what God says and reject his saviour, the trial turns round. You know, Stephen's standing there on trial, and he says, no, you are on trial. You are on trial because you have rejected God. It's just the whole thing flips upside down. They are the followers of the people who rejected Moses. They are the followers of those who disobeyed the law. Verse 53, you who have received the law but have not obeyed it. They follow the patriarchs who sold Joseph into slavery. Verse 52, you have betrayed and murdered the righteous one. Stephen's not the one who is changing the customs of Moses. Stephen is not the one who is destroying the temple. They are. They killed Jesus Christ and they disobey the law. The prophet that was promised by Moses is the one that they just crucified a few months ago. They are in the tradition of those who reject God's prophets and kill them. And so what do they do? Take Stephen outside and kill him. He could have he could have stopped. He could have stopped at verse 50. But as a faithful witness to Jesus Christ, he continues, even though he knows, even though he knows he would die. And you know, we could we could retell some of the story of the church in this same way. The confrontation of tradition with truth. Of William Tyndale, burned at the stake because he dared to translate the New Testament into English. Of George Whitfield and John Wesley shut out of Church of England churches by jealous clergy who didn't want them preaching the gospel because they were too popular. Of John Bunyan who was locked up in prison because he refused to stop preaching. Of Janani Lewum in Uganda who was assassinated because of what he said about Idi Amin. You can, you can tell the story of the church in this way. Tradition confronted with truth and people killed because of it. Because over and over again we, we can enshrine tradition to such an extent that it, that it is immune to what God is actually saying. That, that it we, we become immovable, just so certain of, of our own thing that we resist God, we resist Jesus Christ. And so over and over again, faithful witnesses must come and speak truth to confront tradition. Well, secondly, more briefly, the faithful witness loves Jesus more than life. We've said already, Stephen could have stopped at verse 50. He could have actually stopped at verse 53. I mean, they're furious at him, but, but he could have stopped. And yet, verse 55, full of the Holy Spirit, he looks up, sees the glory of God, Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he carries on witnessing to Jesus at that point. And then... Even as he's dragged outside of the city and people heaving paving slabs at his head to kill him, 
He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Does it sound familiar? In his death, Stephen is like Christ, continuing to witness to him in his words and in his death. It's a huge challenge, isn't it? After the 11.15 service last week, um, I was chatting with someone at the back. Matthew Price had preached a great sermon and he'd um, given an illustration of a a young Chinese girl, 12-year-old girl, during the Boxer Rebellion um, back in the early 1900s who, amongst other Christians, was called to deny Christ. And she was the first of the group to refuse and she was killed. And we were talking afterwards and just saying... Such a challenge to hear those kind of stories. You know, if you get the World Vision updates and magazine, that, that kind of thing, you hear this happening. And I'm wondering, you know, would, would I, what would I do in that situation? What would I do? And I, in one sense, until the situation comes, we don't know, do we? What would we do? Would we, would we remain faithful, knowing that death was coming? You know, not, not possibly, but knowing. But it's possible by God's power. Verse 55, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. That's what, that's what makes it possible. Full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen, as as God's faithful witness, loves Jesus more than his own life and and just continues witnessing to him. But finally, the the faithful witness is not wasted because it seems such a waste, doesn't it? I mean, if you you read about Stephen in in chapter 6 and uh, Simon was talking about him last week at this service and you you just see the the wisdom and the, the, the brilliance of the guy, really, I mean, he, he's phenomenal. And, and you can imagine him being kind of marked out as the next great thing in the church, you know, the next great guy. He's going to be amazing. He's going to do such awesome things for God. And, you know, a short time later, he's crushed under a pile of rubble outside Jerusalem. No more... Wisdom, no more power. What a waste. But the psalmist reminds us of this. The psalmist says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Jesus doesn't waste his witnesses. You see, firstly, Saul was there. End of verse 58, the witnesses lay their clothes at his feet. Beginning of chapter 8, he was there giving approval to his death. You see, as as one witness is being slaughtered, another witness, completely unexpected, how on earth is that guy ever going to do anything for God? Witness is there. God knows what he's doing. And secondly... The church was scattered. But look where it went. 
All except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Sound familiar? Acts 1 verse 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The church is scattered to exactly the places Jesus wants it to go. So, so the Pharisees or the, the council, the Sanhedrin, the high priest, they, they've come in and, and the church is kind of like this blazing fire and they've gone and they've waited and they've kicked it over. But rather than putting it out, all they've done is scatter the fire throughout the land to the places where God wants it to go. So now there's loads of fires all over the shop and they're, and they're going to get scattered and they're going to go. Because Stephen died. Jesus doesn't waste his witnesses. Well, maybe like me, you dislike confrontation. You dislike the idea of standing up in front of a bunch of people and waving your finger at them and saying, this is all your fault. Um, Maybe you like things as, as they are, and you like things to be kind of calm and normal. And, but, but eventually, witnessing faithfully to Jesus requires that we confront tradition with truth, whether it's inside the church, whether it's in the culture. So let's pray for the courage to speak out. Maybe like me, you, you wonder, do, do I really love Jesus more than life? You know, if I was in Stephen's place, would I just kind of say, actually, I probably didn't really mean the things I said, and it probably was a slight misunderstanding. You know, would I really give everything? Well, he doesn't ask us to do it alone. So maybe... Uh, you'd like to pray for the Holy Spirit to give you power to witness, to give you love for Christ. And maybe, like me, you, you worry, what, what will happen if I am a faithful witness? You know, maybe not death, maybe rejection, family, maybe friendships that end because of it. Maybe just shame, maybe just horrendous awkwardness and embarrassment. But however awkward and embarrassing or however failed our witness seems to be, Jesus doesn't waste it. He doesn't waste his witnesses. And he can use it for good. So let's pray for the Holy Spirit to send us. Let's pray together now. Heavenly Father, we see Stephen and to us uh, it can seem very far away that such things could happen. We know that to many of our brothers and sisters such things are very real. But we pray for ourselves, Lord, that you would give us courage through your Holy Spirit to witness to Jesus. That you would give us the wisdom and the power that Stephen had to witness to Jesus. 
that you would help us and give us a deep and fervent love for Jesus to witness to him. And that you would send us from here into our week, wherever we are, whoever we're speaking to, to witness to Jesus. We pray this for his glory. Amen.